Gene Shepard. You see, the trouble with Aunt Teresa was not a trouble at all. It was just a common human failing. Aunt Teresa loved to concoct molded foods because this was the only way that she could actually overtly do the molding that was part of her innate desire to deal with other people. In short, her only real satisfaction came from molding other people's lives. Ever tell you what she did to my Uncle Fred? I had this Uncle Fred who was one of these totally harmless people. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one who stands up and says that the nice people are the totally harmless people. Because quite often the totally harmless people are likewise the dullest people and contribute to probably the worst thing that man has to fight all of his life, and that is boredom. To be surrounded by totally nice people in many ways is to be surrounded by total nothingness. And I, I'm afraid of that. You know, one of the major colleges here in, in the East is, 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 is conducting... Actually, it's a, it's a three-credit-hour course subject that is in the social humanities division of the university. Creative friendship, one and two. Well, that's, that's neither here nor there. Aunt Teresa did something to Uncle Fred which I will never forget. Uncle Fred was one of those, those, those wild dreamers which, by the way, are almost completely out of our, of our world. You know, one of the most interesting, one of the most interesting, uh, outgrowths of the 20th century man was was the man who we call today the backyard inventor. The backyard inventor almost does not exist now. I mean, he can't any longer because inventing has become a corporate procedure that uh, people invent things in laboratories with a lot of other people involved, a lot of uh, technicians and a lot of technicalities and test tubes going. But the guy who just sits down in the basement and spends 25 years inventing a new kind of Venetian blind that is operated by a push button. And the thing that made uh, the backyard inventor great was the fact that usually, in many, many cases, I shouldn't say always, but in many cases, his dream was totally unrelated to an actual need. In short, if a man sat down and tried to invent something that really was needed, okay, but many of them just sat down there and invented something that had no actual use at all, except in the mind of the inventor. Well, Uncle Fred was an inventor. He really wasn't an inventor because of what, because of what Aunt Teresa did to him. It would be as if, well, now I know a lot of guys who would have been writers or who would have been actors or who would have been uh, poets if it wasn't for what Aunt Teresa did to them in one way or another. Well, Aunt Teresa was an angry woman. She was like a rhinoceros. I mean, a truly angry woman. She was gray. She was born gray and sort of jowled with two small, blue, wrinkled, angry eyes looking out of, just looking out of that, that, that boiling turmoil of a soul. And what she got angry about, no one ever knew because she had four other sisters who were totally the other way. I mean, the kind who played bingo and bunko all the time, all of their lives, you know, always hitting little bells and hollering bunko, that sort of thing. They lived on bridge mix and small talk, idle chatter, constantly in and out of the butcher shop all the time, not Aunt Teresa. Aunt Teresa, out of that, out of that, you know, this is an interesting thing. You know, sociologists are constantly, are constantly trying to, to determine which is the most important, heredity or an environment situation. 
they they constantly go back and forth. Sometimes uh, in the in the long in the long haul of the study of sociology and or psychology, one time the the uh, the pendulum swings towards environment, then it'll swing towards uh, the the business of heredity, back and forth. Well, Aunt Teresa came from the same environment and the same heredity, the same situation entirely, and and she was. <laughs> this is like Mendel's law. It was, it was. I, I think Mendel's law not only works with red hair, it not only works with corn. You know what is it? Mendelian's law. Isn't it Mendel? I think I'm trying to remember my my second year biology. Anyway, he's the guy who said that that if somewhere all the way back in the early generations of corn there was one red plant and there were so many white plants that one out of four of the corn that will grow. The recessive and the aggressive characteristics, something like it's—it's it's amazing how your how your education becomes just like a, a a pot of jello after a while. Little isolated facts float around in it, and and usually these isolated facts have become non-facts. Little isolated would be used to be facts. It's like your education becomes, in a sense, like a bowl of Campbell's vegetable soup with all those little A's and B's floating around, and each A and each B can authentically be said to be part of our language and really uh, are taken right out of, uh, let's say, James Joyce. He used a lot of B's and a lot of A's and a lot of C's, but there they float around in there amid all those bits of celery and cucumber and okra, all the rest of the glop that you get glossed over your education as you get older. And so I, I remember Mendel's Law, you know, and Mendel's Law maintained somehow that, that if... if the res- let's say the recessive characteristic of corn is red corn, and the the aggressive characteristic, in other words, the most common characteristic, is yellow corn, and that one out of four plants would be red, and the others would be would be yellow. Well, I suspect this also works in human temperament. That that if there are four nice guys born in a family, one sorehead has got to come along. If you wait long enough. I mean, it, it might go for three generations in those soreheads, and suddenly there will be nine soreheads born that will make up the whole statistic, you see. Well, Aunt Teresa was the sorehead. This actually was the aggressive characteristic of the family. The, the other three sisters, or the other four, actually, were, 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 were biological sports. I happen to know the family. We'll not even get into that. And so Aunt Teresa was angry. Boy, she was sore. She was sore from, from the she why why to her why to her the, the, the Chicago Tribune, which is an angry newspaper, one of the very few newspapers that, that in a sense caters completely to the ego of of the, the great unwashed, the paper that just announces uh, on the top of its sheet, the world's greatest newspaper. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of ego? Just WOR, the world's greatest radio station here. And now stay tuned for Ed and Peggy. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's that it's that kind of complete that com- that complete. I don't imagine it's belief in yourself. It's, it goes beyond that. And so here is Aunt Teresa. She's she's born and bred on the Chicago Tribune, solidly believing. And incidentally, this is part of the Chicagoans creed. Chicago is the only city in the world that I know of that has a yearly day that 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 says one thing on great big signs. Thank God I'm a Chicagoan. That's a fact. I'm telling you a very true thing. And I'm sitting there one day in Soldier's Field, and they're having hot diggity dog, I'm Chicagoan 
day, and they're marching around, and the American Legion is out there, and the bands are playing, and the Chicago flag is flying below, by the way, below the United States flag, I will have to tell you this, but above several other flags. And so everything is flying out there, and, and the lights are going off and on. They're having trouble with the switches, and it starts to rain. And, and it's raining and raining and raining, and, and the mayor of Chicago gets up to give a speech. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, fellow Chicagoans, fellow Americans. You notice the order in which they appear. Fellow Chicagoans, fellow Americans. This is undoubtedly due to the unfortunate international situation that those East Coast meddlers, those foreign meddlers have gotten us. And he went on and on into a long tirade describing the rain as a plot by New York to wash out I am a Chicagoan day. And it made sense. <laughs> as Galen Drake would say, it makes a lot of sense. And... and <laughs> To them, I guess it did. And Aunt Teresa was a born and bred Chicagoan, which means vaguely angry all the time. Uh, that You see, I think the reason that, that so many people are conscious about being Chicagoans in Chicago is that it hasn't quite panned out. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> it's like getting all set for the race. Everybody Everybody has been grooming the car or the horse or the boat. And vaguely things begin to go wrong. The sails don't quite fit. The saddle doesn't fit. The valves begin to be loose in their, in their seats, and, and the race comes. You run a fairly decent race, but you're not really actually ever really in the running, except in your own imagination. And this is the problem. So Aunt Teresa did this to Uncle Fred. She took it out, as we usually do. I think most people marry other people, one, because they don't like them. I don't think they marry people because they like them. And don't bring love and the like. I know a lot of people who are in love but who hate each other. It's a completely different process, believe me. And and uh, I, I suspect that Aunt Teresa married Uncle Fred because she didn't like Uncle Fred's dreaming. And uh, we do have a desire to destroy that which disturbs our equilibrium in any situation. If somebody comes into an office, if everybody wears nice gray suits and some guy comes in and wears a blue suit and wears tennis shoes, you've got to do something to this guy. You just have to. You have to do it. If, if, if everybody buys a certain type of car and this guy comes along driving an Isetta or something, you've got to make something of it. You just have to. And so Aunt Teresa, I believe, married Uncle Fred because she didn't like Uncle Fred. Now, she might have loved him. That was another story. But, but she was forced into marrying him by the very hate that she bore for what he stood for, which was this kind of gentle James Thurber dream. And, and Uncle Fred spent all of his all of his hours down in the basement working on a scheme for a new type of movie camera. Now, no one in the family ever knew what this movie camera, because he was very secretive about it, as most people are about their important dreams. It was just known in the family that Uncle Fred was working on a new movie camera. And he had this this kind of gray, vaguely poetic look about him all the time. And he was the only uncle I knew as a child who really was, in his own way, a poet. And he was kind of, sort of gray and very hazy and foggy. He was not the absent-minded professor. He was not the idealist that, that are constantly being painted in, in articles in The New Yorker. He was not at all these things. He was just a man that was vaguely displaced, that the kitchen wasn't his place. He didn't fit in the, in the living room where Aunt Teresa held her court. He didn't fit next to the potted palm. And he was always just sort of vaguely enduring it. 
And and Aunt Teresa was aware of this, you know. You didn't endure Aunt Teresa. You put up with Aunt Teresa. And she wanted him to fight back. That's what she wanted. And and, and she never got a fight from Uncle Fred. And so she was pounding him constantly. The, the, the only way he could have ever stopped it would have been to stand up to his full five feet nine and swatted her right in the jaw once. Knocked her down the air shaft and said, I'm going out for a jug of wine. And a loaf of bread and that chick I used to know. That would have stopped Aunt Teresa cold. She would have fallen not only madly in love with him all over again, she would have liked him. You see, which would have been another story. Well, anyway, Aunt Teresa was hammering him on the head all the time, all the time, just all the time. And she, she loved to do it, especially when people were around. I don't know what they were like when people weren't there. But I understand from Uncle Fred it wasn't always that way. He used to say, now, now, Teresa. That's all he ever said, now, now. <laughs> and the poor guy, she used to sit there and everybody's playing. My grandfather and all my other uncles would play pinochle. Well, she hated to see Uncle Fred enjoy himself. And he liked in his quiet way to play pinochle with, with my grandfather and the uncles. And, the, and he was the quiet pinochle player. He always used to say quietly, I pass. But he loved it, even if he passed all the time. Never melded more than 40, 40 pinochle. That's about all he ever melded. He's sitting there and he'd say, I pass, with a kind of a smile on his face. And he used to drink the beer and he'd just sit there and eat a little cheese and play pinochle. And from the, from the, from the living room, they're doing this in the kitchen. From the living room, you'd hear Aunt Teresa. She had one of these shrill voices that angry people invariably develop. Angry people never have quiet voices. Never. And she's saying, The other day I was talking to Fred. I, I don't know what's in that man. And she's going on and on and on. And Fred is just saying, I pass. And once in a while, once in a while, at between hands, he would say, Now, Teresa. He'd look into the living room and say, Now, Teresa. And Teresa would just roll on and on and on like the angry waters of the worst river you've ever seen. Speaking of angry, muddy waters, this is WOR, AM and FM, New York. We will be here until 2 o'clock. Well, Aunt Teresa finally got to Uncle Fred. She finally got to him, and I'll tell you what she did. She moved lock, stock, and barrel. You know, this kind of person runs the family. You don't, you don't brook any, any uh, interference. They lived in a little house that had a basement. Now, listen to this. For as long as I knew Uncle Fred until the last days of his life. They lived in a house with a basement, a little place on North St. Louis Avenue in Chicago. And he was happy because he could spend a lot of time down in the basement, quote, working on the new movie camera. And he had a couple of drills and he had a little lathe down there and he'd bang around. And Aunt Teresa never went down there. She never went down to the basement, ever. She was always talking about that mess in the basement. Someday I'm going to have that mess in the basement cleaned up. That's just the way she said it, and I remember it clearly. And then, one day, the word came out. They were moving. They never had any children. They'd lived there for years. They were moving to an apartment on the sixth floor of a faceless apartment house on Elston Avenue. Without a basement. Well, I don't have to tell you the rest of the story. The rest of the story tells itself. Uncle Fred, from the minute they moved into that apartment, grew so quiet that he just he was he was mute. He never said a word. There was no place to go. And he would sit in the living room there, surrounded by the ferns and the potted palms and the calendars and the key that hung on the wall that said Souvenir of St. Petersburg, Florida. He would just sit there 
And once in a while, they would go out, maybe every third or fourth Sunday, they would go to my grandfather's house and play pinochle. And, and Uncle, Uncle Fred would just sit there, and he wouldn't smile anymore. He would merely say, I pass. But it was a different kind of passing. It was a surrender. I pass. And all the while, you could hear Aunt Teresa yapping away there in the, in the living room, and she had a note of triumph in her voice, talking about how wonderful it now is to be in an apartment where you didn't have to worry about all that mess all the time of those rooms down in the basement. And Uncle Fred never said a word. And once in a while she would say, Don't you find it so much better living in an apartment? Tell him about it, Fred. You know how people always say, Go ahead, ask Fred. He'll tell you. <laughs> don't you ever do that. Ah, don't ever do that. Don't ever really ask Fred. Do you know how Fred, how long Fred lasted after they moved into the apartment? Seven and a half months. Fred passed away quietly in his sleep at the age of 57, which was a good 20 years too soon, because he came from a family that lived to 110, all of them. Fred just passed. When they were making the bids, Fred one night said, I pass. And he did. By the way, Aunt Teresa was especially angry about the fact that Fred died in his sleep. She somehow wanted to get in the last word. It was just too late. That's the first woman I've ever seen at a funeral who didn't look sad, who didn't look unhappy, but looked frustrated. There was Fred stretched out. She couldn't say a word. And, and, and if there is ever a heaven where guys go, I know what Uncle Fred's looks like. A rotten, crummy, smelly basement with all kinds of tires piled up and an old workbench. And old Fred is standing there. Just standing there working away on that movie camera. Whatever that dream was. There are elements of Ahab in each one of us, believe me. Pursuing endlessly a white whale. I don't know what white whale it was that Aunt Teresa ever, ever pursued. Because Aunt Teresa took the insurance money and cleared out. Went to California, and no one's heard from her since. <laughs> and so, and so you, you can't... You, you, you have to draw the obvious conclusion. Speaking of obvious conclusions, we have with us this afternoon the Village Voice. And uh, before I go any further about the voice, you know, I, 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 I had a letter from a girl the other day who said, Shepard, sometimes it embarrasses me listening to you. It's as though I'm eavesdropping on something I shouldn't hear. That's a great thing to say. I accept this as a real compliment because every writer who writes, the reason that so many people write is because the things they really want to say, they can't say even to themselves. They can only put on a blank sheet of paper. And I treat this air, this blank space and the silence that I work in, which is exactly parallel to the white paper that a writer works in, as that same private, that, that, that private thing that I own. For this two minutes, I'm, I'm filling it up with the things I can't tell anybody. I could never tell my mother about Uncle Fred and what I felt about it. Because she would be involved too, you see. And she would start getting all flustered and say, Well, I don't know. I mean, Aunt Teresa... And it would go on and on and on. I can't tell her these things. I can't tell you, Jim, because you wouldn't care. I can't tell anybody, you see. I can only tell it to myself, and this is where I tell it. Right here. And I don't do a show for people, believe me. It's not the way a writer writes, either. He doesn't write for an audience. And all I can say is that the last time I will ever mention Uncle Fred 
because he was one of the great tragic figures of my youth. And and the the uh, the victory and the defeat. And I'm not so sure that, that Aunt Teresa really had a victory there. Because in the end, he defeated her, you see. As every human being defeats every other human being in the end. By remaining exactly what he is. That, that when a person disappears, one of the most frustrated of all men. You know, I, I did I ever tell you about the time I interviewed a murderer? One time in a cell? Oh, yes, I used to do a lot of things in this business. I've done many, many things. Something, you know, radio used to be a wildly exciting field of creative endeavor. It isn't any longer. It's a sales medium now, unfortunately. And that's a different thing. Uh, and I can remember uh, doing this. Used to do. Everyone used to be competing. Every radio station would compete for new, new ideas. And I don't mean gimmicks, sales gimmicks. I mean new creative shows. And one of the things that I, I was, I did, and I'll never forget, a radio station somehow uh, back in the Midwest got permission of the local authorities to interview people in their jail cells, providing they gave us the right. You know, in other words, the guy had to give us an okay that he wouldn't mind talking. We never used their names, and they were very truthful. And it was a fascinating show to really talk to these guys. And I remember one day I'm talking to a murderer, a guy who had killed another man, who had been his enemy for 25 years, and he finally did it. And I sat there, and I, I'm sitting next to him in the cell. We're sitting on the bunk there, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't an official-type interview. I was just talking to him, preparatory to interviewing him. And I said, I said, you know, I, I want to ask one thing that I've never heard anybody ask a murderer. He said, what is it? He's a very ordinary guy. He was a kind of a businessman. In fact, he was a businessman who one day did what they call in papers, went berserk, ran amok, went next door and shot the guy between the eyes, went back and sat down behind his cash register, called the cops and said, come and get me. That's exactly what he had done. And so I'm sitting there and I said to him, uh, how do you feel now? He said, what do you mean? I said, do you, feel, do you feel relieved? I mean, are you glad you did it? He didn't deny he did it, you see. It wasn't those cases where, where a guy uh, holds out and says no. He says, you know, it has made me madder than ever. I said, what? He says, yeah. That miserable lout is gone now. I can't touch him. I said, what do you mean? I, I, I was, uh, if I had the feeling I was getting close to a truth here. And this is exactly what he told me. He says, and, and he used unprintable language. He is gone. I says, what do you mean? He says, let me tell you. He says, for over 20 years, every three or four days, I would meet that guy on the street, and we would look at each other, and I knew one of us was going to kill the other. One day, either he was going to get me or I was going to get him. And I used to stand there, and for ten minutes, I would let this guy know just exactly what I thought of him. He was a no-good, miserable, and he went on and on and on. And he says, one day, I don't know why I did it, I got up, I went next door, and I shot him. I said, do you feel glad about it? He said, no. I said, well, what do you mean? You're, you're rid of this clown. He says, I don't know. It hasn't made me feel happy. He still hated the guy? He still thought he did, did not deserve to live, but somehow, you see, the other guy had won a victory because he was gone now. And all this man was left with was his anger. And there is nothing as sad as pointless anger. Which, by the way, I think most of our comics today have. 
anger as a package. As a matter of fact, you can buy it now in friendly neighborhood drugstores. It has to be taken uh, in prescription doses, though. You, too, can be a comic. Get mad. <laughs> and, and, and just keep it going, no matter what it is. Just be angry. I've often wondered what's going to happen to most of the comics today if the Democrats get in. <laughs> I notice a few of them are already paving the way by becoming angry about the Democratic candidates so that they will be on record so when one of them wins, he will be able to say, ha, ha, ha. I'm, I'm vastly amused by pointless anger. I hope my show doesn't sound that way. I am not angry. In fact, I am wildly excited about life. And for that reason, I am constantly, <laughs> I am constantly running afoul of things and, and at the same time being amused. You don't think I was mad at Aunt Teresa, do you? No. I think she was equally tragic. Not angry at Aunt Teresa. Not a bit of it. Do you think, do you think I was angry at the hopeless cab company? No. I like the hopeless cab company, as a matter of fact, as, a, as opposed to the bright and cheery cab company, which has the dirtiest cabs in New York. And, and so you see, the, 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 it all balances out. It's just, it's, it's just uh, here, there, and then. And, and speaking of comics, I would like to point out that Jules Pfeiffer has a new book out that uh, got a, a wild review in the Village Voice this week. And this is a book called The Explainers. Now, I am not... I am not uh, it's a funny thing about one person talking about another. Uh, I'm in the position of uh, of talking about a man who, in a sense, is in the same general area of social commentary that I am. And I can say that I admire 99% of Jewell's work. I think I think his work is magnificent. I, I, will, uh, I will say that if you're interested in a review of Pfeiffer's new book, I would suggest you pick up a current copy of The Village Voice, and Gilbert Milstein of The Times has written a review. I am not as wildly enthusiastic as Gill is. However, I think Jewell's work is extremely valuable. And I would like to point out that, that uh, his work, almost all of the things in the current book, which I think is better than his last book, by the way, this is a personal opinion, appeared originally in The Village Voice and in The London Observer. And a few appeared in Playboy. It's a compilation of his best work of the last year or so. And, and it's, it's a real big dollar-and-a-half purchase and if you're making the village scene uh, in the next three or four hours, the place to get this book, I, I think that they're on sale most everywhere in good bookstores, but I know that there's a big stack of them right now down in the paper book gallery. And if you're making the village scene during the weekend, I would suggest you drop into the gallery. They're open tonight until, oh, two in the morning, you know. It's one of the few places I know of where you can idly spend your time just standing. You know, we have a terrible sense of guilt in our time. Where if you're ever just standing, not doing a darn thing, you feel guilty. Uh, you can do it with complete immunity in the paper book gallery. Somehow you have a sense that you're absorbing, you're, <laughs> you're, you're absorbing culture, even if you're just standing there scratching. And I would suggest that you do it at the paper book gallery down on, on uh, Sheridan Square. They're open until 2 in the morning. And if you're listening... Walk in and see what happens. I'm not going to tell you any more. Just walk into the... I'm not going to say any more about this than to just drop this hint. If you go into the paper book gallery in the next three or four days, just walk up to one of those smug clerks and say, Excelsior, you fathead, and stand back and see what happens. <laughs> really, seriously. Don't worry about him. 
I can Indian wrestle any one of the crowd to the ground or all four of them together. So don't worry about them. If I can do it, you can do it in spades. It really doesn't matter. Uh, this is the paper book gallery, and they're also over on 3rd Street, back at the NYU campus. And while we're on the subject of Jules Pfeiffer, I would like to point out that all of Pfeiffer's work originally appeared in The Village Voice. Uh, I told a little story the other night about meeting Ed Fancher. Did I tell you about that strange little thing? You know, this town, I meet more people I know in New York than I ever met in any small town in the Midwest. There is something inbred about New York. I can ride on a bus up Fifth Avenue and look out and I'll see 35 guys in every block that I know. Did I tell you the other day I'm riding on the bus and I see Charles Adams standing by Rockefeller Center, just standing there moodily. He's a great big guy, sort of a, you know, kind of a successful insurance man looking guy. And he's standing there by Rockefeller Center looking from Fifth Avenue towards the big Rockefeller Center building, you know, where the skaters and all that is. And he's just sort of standing there in the sun, and people are walking past him. I says, by George, there's Adams. And I wanted to bang on the way. Hey, Charlie, hey! But the bus kept right on going, and we go a little bit further, and, and uh, I see, uh, the, in, the, in the next block, I see Ogden Nash walking along. And, and you know, it's, it's strange. Then I see three guys named Fred that I know. And it just goes on and on and on, the city of New York. Anyway, I'm, I'm walking across the street right in the middle of a fantastic traffic jam. I'm struggling in between cabs and all, and suddenly a door flies open and out falls Ed Fancher. And he hollers, Hey, Shepard! And he throws a dollar to the cab driver, and we run into the crowd. We had to run because the bill was a dollar and a half. And Ed publishes the Village Voice, which has no more than a dollar a week expense account for any executive on the staff. And we tore down the street and into the Horn and Hard Art, which is always a safe haven. And we're sitting there, and, and, and Ed and I are, are having a cup of coffee talking it over, when all of a sudden two guys got up from the next table and came over to us, two thin guys who, who are engineers in some place out on Long Island. And one of them said to me, Hey, uh, Shepard, uh, you're Shepard, aren't you? And I said, Yeah, uh, uh, I, 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 I like the stuff you do in the Village Voice. I, I, I read you in the Village Voice, and, and I like that story you had there called The Prince and the Rose. I just thought I'd tell you, I, I like it. I said, Ed! Ed, hey, hey, fella here, this is Ed Fancher who publishes The Voice. He says, glad to meet you, Mr. Fancher. Your paper swings. Uh, I'm glad to meet you. And this little thin guy with his friend turned around apologetically and then came back and said, would you please autograph my voice? He never once mentioned I was on the radio or anything. I was being acknowledged for something that I, I kind of sneak in the back way and do. It's a wild thing, you know. <laughs> and, and so Ed, Ed and I are sitting there and I said, Ed, you know, this is great. And Ed turns to me and he says, wow, this is what it's about, man. And then we we left and walked down the street fitting magnificent. And if you'd like to know about this paper, it is now the ninth largest, and that is a real record for a paper that started just four years ago. It's now the ninth largest weekly in the entire United States. And there are a lot more than nine weeklies in the United States. Believe me, I'm talking about weekly newspapers. And the, uh, Ed told me the other day, and I shouldn't say this on the air, he says, we are going to be the number one weekly in two years. And I believe it. This is an important little paper, and if you would like to subscribe to the Village Voice that really feels that that's what it's all about, having people read it, give them a call now at Watkins 4 4669. Watkins 4 4669. 
And if you live out of town, it's three dollars a year, by the way, and it's it's a really big three dollars worth. You're going to get angry. I had a, a letter from a minister the other day. He says, "Shepherd, that village voice really teased me off." <laughs> he says, "But I can't stop reading it." And so there he is every every week in his rectory, every Wednesday night, wrestling with the devil, and he just can't stop. That's right. <laughs> I would like to suggest the number. It's Watkins 44669. You'll get in touch today with their empathy editor, who is on, on the switchboard today, taking the calls. Ask for empathy editor and make contact. It's Watkins 44669 here in New York, and they will pay for out-of-town calls. They will accept the charges from no matter where you're calling. They will bill you, and you'll start getting the paper next week. <laughs> What we're doing, to use the vernacular, is turning you on. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, it's it's like this little news note. I mean, you, you just can't help it. And I might as well clear up the village while I'm at it right now. Right next to the paperback gallery, if you're going to really make it this week, uh, on 3rd Street, about two doors up, is Ying and Yang. Ying and Yang is at... 82 West 3rd Street, and is really, I think, one of the finest, most interesting, certainly one of the most pleasant restaurants in New York. This is a, this is a considered opinion of mine, and, and I, I am very serious. Marty, Marty Geisler of the Paper Book Gallery called me the other day, and he says, you know, actually, I'll tell you who told me this. It wasn't Marty, come to think of it. It was Louis de Rochemont, who makes movies. De Rochemont was sitting in his office one day, and a friend of his came in, and this is an important movie maker, you know. They're sitting there in very official offices. Guy says, I don't know. He says, y y I understand you know this guy, Shepard. And uh, Louis says, yep. He says, well, you know, I listen to him every week. He says, I, I don't, you know, he says, commercials I don't pay much attention to. But the other day, and they live way up in Connecticut. He says, the other day, we're going to New York for the weekend, see. And my son insists. He says, I wanted to go to Sardi's or one of these jazzy places. My son insists on going to Ying and Yang. And, and we were also on Saturday night, instead of going to the movie, we were going to go to Ying and Yang. We were also going to make the paper book gallery. He says, this kid is 13. He said, so, all right, you know, it's his birthday, the whole routine. So we came down, and he said it was a wild place. And he said he really dug the food. And more than that, he says, I bought about $28 worth of stuff in, in the paper book gallery, and I get books free. <laughs> yeah, it was a wild thing. And he says, I don't know. He says, Shepard must have to be very careful about who he picks to sponsor him because people really do it. Well, that's true. I'm going to point out I am the despair of the sales department. I do not have to do this for a living. I, anytime I want, I can go back to the steel mill. I'm telling you, my, my, my card is still good in Local 1010. It is. I still hold a live card in Local 1010 of the United Steelworkers of America. I'm a member in PETA, and, and, and I'll never forget Mr. Snyder when I left the steel mill, the tin mill, actually. He says, Shepard, the latch key is always out. So anytime I want to come back to the tin mill assorting department, I can. So I don't do this for a living, I'm telling you. I would like to recommend Ying and Yang. And uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to pick up a couple of friends of mine, and I, will, I think I'll go down there and pamper myself again this weekend because it's Easter. And I'm going to go down and yin and yang, and I'm going to eat some of those chicken wing. Chicken wing appetizers. I think I'll be there around, I don't know. It's my own business. Whenever I care to pull in, I'll pull in. <laughs> but, but seriously, every weekend, I, I, I like to treat myself to one magnificent meal. And yin and yang is where I go. It's 82 West 
Third Street in the village. They are open until 1 o'clock this morning, and they are open Sundays until 1. They're open at noon, and they are open every other day of the week. They do have a bar. And one more note, we have the Village Voice, we have Ying and Yang, and most importantly right now, the Electronic Workshop. Uh, the workshop is on 26 West 8th Street in the village, and I'm, I believe me, if there's anything I'm careful about selecting, as far as a sponsor is concerned, is an electronic concern. I happen to be an amateur radio operator. Uh, I don't know whether you know anything about what a ham is, but an amateur radio operator is a man who probably most of his life has had a deep and abiding interest in things electronic and knows something about them. Uh, I think one of the great flim-flam games of our time is the retail electronic store. Would you agree with me, Jim, or not? <laughs> Jim knows, too. He's a ham. Uh, this is a fact, and uh, it, it, it has bugged me for a long time that most electronic shops, many of them, I should say, use the great ignorance of the public to work against the public. In short, many people feel that electronics is kind of a magical thing, you know, they put it in the same classification with brain surgery, with, with, with psychology and astrology. And it's a thing, I don't know anything about it, take it. Just take it and fix it. And they bring it in, and of course, this is a terribly open situation. You get it back, and they have written down a lot of incomprehensible things on the bill of sale, and all you know is that every part costs twenty-three fifty, and they have to send to Denmark to get it, according to what the guy tells you. And, and you wind up with a bill of $67 for work on a preamp, which cost you 58 new. Uh, and it's a sense of hopelessness, you know. I would like to point out that, that the electronic workshop is diametrically opposed to this kind of operation, and they really are. For that reason, they're constantly bailing to keep above water. You will find this true. You will find bailing cans lining the entire wall, the south wall of the electronic workshop, because every two weeks when the rent comes due, they got to bail. It's at 26 West A Street, and you will find these people honest, and currently they are having a big sale of almost all the nationally advertised brands of high-fidelity equipment. If you've been looking for things that you specifically are interested in, find out what they're charging today at the workshop, and they themselves will, will maintain it for you. They will stand behind it. It isn't just one of these little things in the, in the uh, box when you open it up. It says, Warranty. Have you ever once tried to get your money back on a lifetime pen that fizzled out six weeks before you died? I mean, you know, this this idiotic term, lifetime, the lifetime for what? The other day I go into a store on, on uh, where you see this probably amplified more than anything else, more than anywhere else, is on Times Square. You know, I'm driving along going in a cab going going west, and I'm, I'm coming along there, and suddenly there is an omen before me. It's one of these places where they sell Japanese cameras. You know, the little Japanese... Did you ever know anyone who was taking pictures with Japanese, with one of these tiny Japanese cameras? What a beautiful idea for a cartoon. There is an idea for a cartoon, cartoonist. There are about 28 guys taking pictures, you see, of this, of this model. You know, the, at the National Pho Photography Ball and that they have. Guys are standing there with Leicas, with Nikons, with all kinds of Zeiss lenses, stuff hanging all over them, Rolleiflex, Rolleicords, Icataflexes, and they're all there. Lights are going. In the middle of it all is a little guy taking a picture with a 69-cent Japanese camera held up in his left eye. <laughs> I have never seen anybody use one of these things. And, and, and you can always tell how the economy of the neighborhood is going by the price they're charging. 
the, the saddest one of all is a place on 42nd Street the other day that I saw that had a sign, Japanese cameras, they work, they work, they work. <laughs> and it said, 39 cents, special closeout sale. It's the cheapest I've ever seen them. Over on Fifth Avenue, they're 89. The same cameras. Japanese cameras, they work, they work, they work. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's a funny business about this Japanese camera world. The, the whole world, I, 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 I see this shop ahead of me, and it's filled with Japanese cameras and Italian ashtrays and all the other stuff that you see in these shops. And in neon, it says, Price War. Somehow I like the idea of a price war that is a war that is so permanent it now has its bulletins in neon, which are very expensive bulletins. And as I went past in the cab, I could hear the small the small arms fire. Of course, it was late, you know, and the commanders had, had battened down the trenches for the night. And you could hear a little patrol action going on once in a while, a little skirmishing out there in the barbed wire. But the price war, it was one of those lulls, one of those momentary beautiful lulls you get in the war. And I went into this price war joint. And I just had to go in. I stopped and I went in. I wanted to see how the battle was going. And a couple of guys were crouched down there behind the cash registers. And I could hear, you know, it's a funny thing. It's right back in old Company K, I can remember. And I could hear the field phones once in a while buzzing back there in the OP. And I walked in and the, and the Japanese cameras were piled up. And the word had just gotten out that, that one of the enemy patrols had just reduced the price to 59 cents on Japanese cameras. And they had dialed and were trying to get the divisional headquarters. And someone had cut the wire somewhere along the line. You know, one of these wire patrols, and there was a little confusion. I walked in, and they had, they had signs there, you know, all over the place. A price war, price war, war has been declared. War. Absolute war, unqualified, absolute conditional, unconditional surrender war. All war-type war. Terrible, terrible, the, the whole thing, you know. They had concentration camp there in the back for, for captured customers who had been seen in other stores. It was an awful thing. It was an awful situation going on there. The whole business, and, and they even had a Hitler in the back there. I could hear this Hitler exhorting his troops in the back. He said, I don't care. I don't care what they're going to do. We are going to draft them out of business. That is what we got to do. And I could hear him back there, and they closed the door because I was a customer. Obviously, they didn't know where I was from, and I complained immediately that I was from a neutral country. I, I represented one of the neutral powers, and I came. I just wanted to see what was going on and to see whether the articles of war were being properly observed. And there was a sign there that said, Forced to Sell, and everything in the window had a sign that said, Forced to Sell. And I walked up to one of the, one of the uh, well, actually, he was a PFC, a BAR man, and I walked up to this guy and I said, Hey, who's forcing you to sell this stuff? And he looked around, he said, The Landlord. I said, the landlord? He said, yeah, the landlord. I said, but isn't that true of the A&P store down there? They're forced to sell everything they've got to or they're out of business. He says, yeah, but don't say it too loudly. And I had suddenly discovered the secret of the price war. <laughs> and, and it was a funny thing. He Just when I left, this guy, he hollers, gas, gas. And, of course, being an old GI, I immediately reached for my hip and realized that my gas mask was gone and was filled with a bag of Hershey bars caught again. And I skulked out and tore down the alley and I was gone. It's funny, you never really lose the, the foxhole instinct. You don't. But then but then on the but then on the other hand, don't don't panic now. You see, there's a weekend coming up and even though your your lock has been changed, don't panic. It's all for the best. I mean it's all for the best because 
Well, you know, I mean, you can push and you can push. It's it's like the other day. I'm looking at the New York Times. It's sad what idiotic ambitions we have. And there's a note that the New Jersey legislature has voted 59 to nothing to change the to change the name of the New York Port Authority to the New York New Jersey Port Authority. And I, you know, it's so sad. We're all trying to make it. In one way, poor New Jersey. So let's think about New Jersey over the weekend. And I, I will see you tomorrow at five minutes past nine with the fist fight out. Be the first in your neighborhood to admit total defeat. Harold Teen here. This is W.